The following is brought to you by the Leave It in the Ring Podcast Network. All boxing, no filter. Greetings and welcome to the Boxing Esquire Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Boxing Esquire Podcast presented by The Ring and RingTV.com and distributed by the Leave It in the Ring Network. My guest on this episode is one of the founders of the independent media-run Transnational Boxing Ratings and the managing editor of Boxing Scene, Mr. Cliff Roll. Cliff's also a member of the Boxing Writers Association, is a voter for the International Boxing Hall of Fame, so we spoke about the latest ballot and who Cliff voted for as inductees for the class of 2020. Also got into his criteria for who gets in and who doesn't. Uh, we further talked about some of the great fights that have happened over the last few weeks, including um, Canelo Kovalev and the sublime Inui Donaire battle. Talked about what's next for the winners of those fights, as well as the balance of equities that go into foreign boxing stars having major fights either at home or in the U.S. So it was a really great conversation, and I hope you enjoy I'd like to welcome back to the podcast uh, one of the founders of the independent media-run boxing ratings organization, the Transnational Boxing Ratings Board, uh, also managing editor of one of the leading boxing websites, uh, BoxingScene.com, and uh, one of the premier writers and thinkers in the sport, Mr. Cliff Rold. Welcome back to the Boxing Esquire podcast. Hey, thanks a lot, Kurt. Always appreciate you having me. Awesome. Awesome, awesome. So, uh, hope all is well. I guess, you know, we're both uh, battling a chest cold here, so uh, listeners, uh, bear with us. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's going around that time of year, and, and also, you know, to every uh, considering when we're taping, for everybody who's listening, it's the day before Veterans Day, and uh, happy Veterans Day to all the people who served out there. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, my father and a bunch of my uncles uh, served uh, in World War Two, Korea, all, all kinds of conflicts but uh yeah definitely uh shout out to everybody who's who served um yeah man i've been meaning to have you on for a few weeks uh since the uh international boxing hall of fame ballots came out because uh, you definitely seem to be one of the writers who really takes the voting seriously and uh i know you do a deep dive into the records and, and history of the fighters on the ballot so uh you know you make the, the the relevant comparisons to really try to accurately place the the deserving guys uh in the hall so uh all right, well, but before we get to the ballot, though, and your picks, I wanted to talk to you about uh, criteria, because uh, the International Boxing Hall of Fame, the voting, you know, often seems like it's kind of a popularity contest and mostly of uh, U.S. fighters. Uh, the smaller fighters from countries outside the U.S. seem to get slighted a little bit, so, but, um, you know, unlike baseball, uh, the, the Hall of Fame voting where you got uh you know, kind of clear-cut numbers or criteria, like 3,000 hits or 500 homers, 300 wins that automatically seem to get you in, you know, save for any PED or gambling activity. Uh, you know, boxing doesn't seem to have that. So what, what criteria do you use uh, personally when, you, when you're looking at the ballots? It's hard. I mean, it, I, try to, I try to go with the guys I think are most deserving first. And for me, most deserving, I try to base as, you know, as much as possible on, on what happened in the ring. The way that they've got the modern ballot cut now. So the modern ballot is, is anybody who had their last fight no later than 1989. So really, we're looking at people from you know, the 80s forward. I saw most of those guys. So that helps, right? I have an impression. 
Um, but you also have to consider, you know, who beat who, when they beat them. Um, sometimes you title accomplishments, you know, guys won titles in five weight divisions. Well, yeah, but you know, after the WBO comes around, you got four chances to do it. Um, you got, you got these silly, you know, interim titles. and So some of that stuff becomes hyperinflated. You gotta, you gotta take your time. Most years it's kind of easy, right? Like there's people I have an eye on that I've studied their careers that I think are deserving. Um, and this year it was funny because some of the guys I've voted for in the past, like, uh, Argentine flyweight Santos Laciar didn't make my ballot this year. It was too crowded. Um, the new requirement where guys only have to be retired three years has opened up a really impressive ballot. So you got to take your time and, and see who you think really deserved it. And, and so this year, um, you know, what I did was I, I pulled up, I have, I happen to have, you know, all of the issues of ring going back to, you know, I have everything pretty much from 1970 forward. So I decided to, to pull everything out and to, to just start the thinking um, because it's the most consistent sort of, you know, independent-ish rating, ratings that you can have. I just sort of did a breakdown of, of looking at, at a selection of the guys on the ballot. So I picked about half of the ballot. There's guys I, that I know from, you know, having seen their careers, knowing what they accomplished that I, I don't think I would ever vote for. So, you know, like a guy like Jorge Arce, really respect his career, super exciting, not a guy I would vote for um, for various reasons. And, and I don't want to pick on Arce. He had a great career. But I took the guys that I thought would likely have a case just, you know, knowing their careers. And then I, you know, took a look at where was where were their opponents ranked? So at what point in their careers did they enter sort of the top 10 of, of, of a weight division? And when was the last time they were rated? So, you know, over that, you know, trying to look at their peak period. So, you know, for a guy might might have entered the ratings for the first time, you know, in, in 1993 and stayed there until 2002. You know, who did they fight during that peak period of their career? Where were their opponents rated? Did they win or did they lose? You know, quality losses. And uh, and then I stratified it that way. And then I, I and then I stepped back and, you know, thought about, you know, who had decisions that might have been considered controversial. And I pared my ballot down that way. And then <clears throat> to make it easier, guys who tested positive for performance enhancing drugs at some point in their career, um, who were on the ballot for the first time. So Antonio Tarver and Shane Mosley, I just decided not to vote for them this year. Um, I would consider them in the future. I expect Shane to get voted in this year, no problem anyways. Um, but I just thought, if you're looking for a way to stratify a deep ballot, that's one way to do it. And, and I think it's fair that way. I mean, these are guys that, that were caught, you know, doing something that is actually dangerous to their opponents um, outside of the norm of a dangerous sport. And so I, I eliminated them, and that's, that's how I pared my ballot down, and then I came up with my top five. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I only I only did uh, uh, the voting like one or two years and I got very frustrated. I think I, I was I mean, this was a while ago, but I remember when Pepino Cuevas and uh, Ingemar Johansson got in. I was just like, you got to be shitting me. So I was, <laughs> I was kind of I was I was out at that point. But yeah, I, I mean, when when I was doing it, though, I was thinking it's like, you know, try to try to use some sort of like baseball type criteria. I was just like. You know, is there any guy who's, you know, kind of considered like the, the, the pound for pound best in the sport at the time? And, you know, how long was he there or was he was he considered the number one guy in the division for any number of years? Um, you know, and how long how long would that have been? You know, has he beaten any Hall of Fame guys or potential Hall of Fame guys? I mean, is, do those do those uh, 
kind of things also go into your consideration or uh, oh sure but i mean i think you also have to stop and think about when that happened right so when did they beat these hall of famers um right you know some guys catch guys way at the end of their career um i mean you know they they'll they'll you know, young guys, rack, uh, young stars often rack up old names of a lot of value. Um, but sometimes, you know, you catch an old guy who's still got a lot of fire, who's still got something left. I mean, we saw that the last two weeks. Sergey Kovalev had plenty left to give a good fight to Canelo Alvarez. You know, Nito Donaire just gave Noya, in a way, a great fight. Sometimes old guys are done. Um, and you got to trust your eyes on that. There's a difference between a, a faded fighter and a shot fighter. And sometimes you see a guy who's shot. I mean, when Larry Holmes beat Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali was shot. I mean, that, right. that wasn't a fighter who, who was himself anymore. Um, he couldn't give you a, a real world-class effort like he used to anymore. So that's different than, you know, Roberto Duran and Aram Barkley. I mean, Duran might have been 37, 38 years old, but he still had enough to beat Aram Barkley. So, right. you know, fighters age differently. Bernard Hopkins was good till he was almost 50. Archie Moore was good till well into his forties. I mean, age isn't age doesn't determine things. You gotta you gotta trust your eyes a little bit and see where guys are. So, absolutely, absolutely. So as you, I mean, you know, and 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 just just so people know, you know, who who was on the ballot. I mean, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go through all the names, but you know, guys who who popped out to be and and like you mentioned, Jorge Arce, uh, Nigel Ben, Timothy Bradley, um, Yvonne Calderon. Uh, Chris Eubank, Carl Frotch, Ricky Hatton, Gennaro Hernandez, Bernard Hopkins, Santos Lassier, Sergio Martinez, um, the Marquez brothers, Juan Manuel and Raphael, Darius Mikulszewski, Michael Moore, um, Shane Mosley, Gilberto Ramon, uh, Antonio Tarver, Meldrick Taylor, Israel Vasquez, mm-hmm. and, and there's there's like a ton more. I mean, that, that's that's not. It's not easy to get that down to five necessarily. <laughs> yeah, and I'll tell you what I did. So when I, I took all the guys and I, I I broke it down, right? I assigned a point value, you know, based on who beat who, where they were ranked, what division. You know, I took into account if you moved up a division and, and in your first fight in that division, you beat a top 10 guy. Took all that into account. So when I scored it out, I'll tell you, off the top, I voted for Hopkins and Wamel Will Market. I don't have to think about them. I don't have to score that out, right? Like those two guys are all time greats. Right. Wamel Will Marquez is is a is, I mean, he's right there with, with Chavez and Olivares and, and he's one of the greatest Mexican fighters of all time, one of the greatest fighters, period. Done. Bernard Hopkins, done. I don't have to think about him. He's a Hall of Famer. Um he, he, you just don't see careers like his very often. So then you got what's left. And what I found is the top, the next five guys, you can only vote for five. So when I broke it down, the next five guys were based on who beat who, where they were rated in the divisions these guys fought. Were Tim Bradley, Sergio Martinez, Ricky Hatton, Rafael Marquez, and Carl Frotch. And so then I got to take into consideration, so then I just started looking at, you know, where would I, where would I consider their careers? So Bradley was, was, a guy that I was kind of on the fence about, but when you break his career down and you really look, and then you realize that along with all these high rated fighters, like even if you throw out the first Manny Pacquiao fight, right? Unified twice at, at 140, fight of the year with Ruslan Provodnikov, you can go into all those superlatives, but he just beat a lot of good fighters. Beat Devin Alexander when he was highly rated. Beat, uh, beat Kendall Holt when he was highly rated at 140. 
beat uh beat Juan Manuel Marquez. So he beat a great fighter coming off the best win of that fighter's career. Right. So, and then you factor in that guys like Lamont Peterson and Miguel Vasquez were not even considered top ten junior welterweights or lightweights yet in their career and went on to have these fantastic careers. So he had quality wins all over the place. A lot of depth to his record that I, I that the more you look at it, you're surprised by the depth. So voted for him. Sergio Martinez was a guy I wasn't going to vote for. But when you break his career down, it's just loaded with top 10 contenders, right? Like from the time he, he beat, I believe it was Alex Benima, jumping up into the top 10 at 154, he beat a bunch of contenders. Um, arguably beat Paul Williams the first time. Got a really, you know, say, like real questionable scorecards, especially the one I believe from Pierre Benoit. There was one really crazy scorecard. Right. And, uh, you know, beat Williams, beat Pavlik, um, beat a bunch of top 10 guys when he was champion. Matt Macklin um, escaped against Martin Murray. Even Sergey Zurich was highly rated at junior middleweight. So I ended up voting for him. So then I got to pick the last spot. And you pick in between, and, and I, I boiled it down. Um, I even took into account Israel Vasquez, right? So, because he was the next guy after those guys. So, you're looking at Hatton, Marquez, Frost, and Vasquez. And ultimately, I went with Rafael Marquez. Rafael Marquez beat almost nothing but guys who were rated at 118 or 115 pounds um, legitimately throughout his Bantamweight title reign before he was a Bantamweight champion, right? So, <clears throat> he had some rough losses early in his career. He was matched real hard early on. Um, I mean, he started his career. His pro debut was against a former world champion, Victor Robinales. Wow. So, you, you, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, his very first fight. That's brutal. He, I think he got knocked out in the eighth round against a former featherweight champion of the world. I mean, that's a hell of a way to start your career. Former bantamweight champ, I think, Robinales, right? No, former featherweight, I believe. And so... Um, I, maybe Bantamweight. I, I, I'm off the top of my head here. So he, he turns pro there. You're right. I think you're right, Bantamweight. So then he entered the race for the first time. He loses to Gennaro Garcia. And it's the last time he loses for years. Comes back, beats Mark Johnson in an absolute classic, right? Right. That was, you know, a lot of people thought Johnson won the first one. Most people have never seen the fight. It wasn't on TV. you got to go find it on YouTube. Great fight. Comes back, has a rematch. They're fighting tit for tat. Knocks Mark Johnson out. Mark Johnson was a staple of the pound-for-pound ratings in the 1990s. Then he beats Timmy Austin when Timmy Austin was considered the best bantamweight in the world. It, him or Vera Fulsa Hapron. Um, and I'm probably just mutilated his name. <laughs> but So he beats Tim Austin in another good fight. Had quality defenses against two defenses against Valencia Mabuza. Um, I mean, he just had a, a really strong run at 118 pounds. Then he jumped up. Beats Israel Vasquez, right? Now he's the lineal champ and the ring champ and all that stuff at 122 pounds. Loses the rematch. And then you got the third fight, which, you know, if you throw their fourth fight out, it, it's it's maybe the best trilogy of fights I've ever seen. It's the only one I can think of where every fight was better than the last fight before it. And then on the tail end, he, uh, he gives good fights. Not winning fights, but good fights. You guys like Toshiaki Nishioka and Daniel Ponce de Leon. Um, I just think when you look at his body of work at Bantamweight and at Junior Featherweight, he, he slightly edges out um, Israel Vasquez, who only fought in one weight class, and Ricky Hatton, who I think some of his better wins, like Jose Luis Castillo was rated number one by ring when Ricky Hatton was world champion and defended against him. But 
I think it's fair to say Castillo wasn't really Castillo anymore. Um, him and Corrales, we never really saw the two of them again after their first fight. Right. Um, and, you know, hadn't, hadn't had uh, some pretty, you know, I mean, his, his two losses in his prime were not bad. I mean, losing to two of the greatest fighters of all time is no problem. And I, I had never really thought about Hatton as much. That was a tough call. And then Carl Frotch, who is a personal favorite of mine, um, you know, from the time he fought Jean Pascal to the time that he beat George Groves, he fought n- almost nothing but legitimate contenders. The softest touch he had in that whole run was uh, was Matt was Yusuf Mack, um, and his only the only unavenged loss is to Andre Ward, another guy who's a shoe in Hall of Famer. Um, it was a tough call all around. I just thought the overall body of work and the quality of the Austin and Johnson wins was uh, was superior to anything else that you had there. So I went with Marquez at number five. No, that's fair. That's that's great. I mean, I, I, like you said, probably the 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 one. The one guy who who who's probably going to make it who you didn't vote for is is Shane Mosley, um, and 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 you know you have your criteria. You have your criteria that if someone has tested positive, then then uh, then you're not going to let them in on the first ballot. Um, but did did um, now Mosley? I, I mean, I, he was he was caught in the in the in the scandal. He was he didn't necessarily test positive, right? Um, did it no, you- but he was part of the Balco. He was part of the Balco scandal in a big way. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't caught officially, but he was caught, and everybody knew he was caught. Um, you know, ultimately he had to. He, I don't remember the exact specifics, but it was pretty clear. Um, Tarver did get caught straight up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and that's a that's a that's something I'm going to do going forward. I don't care who it is, right? If you got caught using performance enhancing drugs in your career on the first ballot, I'm just not going to vote for you. And I, I know some people are like would look at it and say, well, but you would vote for him later. Yeah, I would. But in, in the very first year that you're on on the ballot, it's just, you know, it's a little thing that you can do. I don't think necessarily getting caught disqualifies your entire career. Um, you know, I know some people would say, well, if they got caught once, you know, they probably did it their whole career. I don't like to speculate like that. You don't know that. Um, it, it could have been a one-off. Uh, um, some guys were caught more than once, so you got to consider when in their career. I mean, James Tony got caught a couple times, but that was when he was at heavyweight, uh, former middleweight champion of the world. I, I mean, way back at the end of his career, I'm not sure how much that counts, but it's enough for me to say not in the first year. Mm. So that's just me, and I'm not. And I'm not saying it because I want anybody else to follow suit. People can make their own minds up about that. I'm not crusading. It's just the way I'm going to do it myself. Right. Did it? Did it give? Did Juan Manuel Marquez though give you pause? I mean, there's there's a lot of speculation, and obviously, you know, his his body went through quite a transformation uh, by the time he fought Manny Pacquiao the fourth time. Did did it give you pause to vote for him or not? No, because he, he, I'm not gonna. If you didn't get caught, you didn't get caught. Um, I, I'm not gonna speculate on people. Uh, that kind of speculation is, is sort of a, it, it could lend itself to an infinite regression, right? Cause you could start wondering about everybody and you probably should. I mean, let's be honest. How much of the sport was, has, has probably at least dabbled at the highest level. I mean, probably a lot. Um, the testing wasn't sophisticated enough to, to catch them. Um, so why, you know, I'm not going to speculate on that. Uh, my personal suspicions, I'll, I'll keep to myself. If, if you didn't get caught, I mean, what if I'm wrong? Then um, I'm, I'm making this speculation about somebody's career. I'm questioning their character and for what, you know, because of an eye test. I don't know enough about that stuff to make an eye test determination. 
Right, right. I'm not a scientist. Right. So, so Roy Jones, though Roy Jones, who who tested positive for you know after the uh, Richard Hall fight, you're you're gonna you're gonna withhold a vote for him on on first ballot. Anybody who got caught in their career, um, I'm not gonna vote for on the first ballot going uh, forward. Nobody. Uh, that's brave. <laughs> no, listen, you got to have standards. You got to have standards, and I, I completely agree with that. You got to have process. So. That that that's great. That's great that you have the process. And it's not. And look, at the end of the day, is it really going to affect anything? Right. Probably not. Is Roy going in on the first ballot with a bullet? Probably. Yeah. Yep, so yep. If my vote, if, if my vote helps some other guy who never got caught and uh, you know doing something wrong, you know, if my vote helps them edge over the top in an off year, great. You know, I mean, it, it's fine. The the new threshold is top three get in automatic still. You know that hasn't changed. But if somebody's on more than 80% of the ballots, they also go in. So you could have years with more than three Hall of Famers. I think that's great. Um, you know, it it allows room for the people that, you know, there could be years where there's more than three guys who deserve it. Um, it's not going to eliminate the off years where you don't have obvious Hall of Famers. And so plurality voting is going to kick in. And you could potentially have three guys getting in who only appear on 30% of every ballot. It, but that's okay. At the end of the day, I don't – I used to get excited, right? Like, I'm kind of like you. I, I'd see guys like Cuevas and, and Johansson, who I think are questionable picks personally. But at the end of the day, is it really like is, – is it the end of the world if they make the Hall of Fame? No. I mean, they're on the ballot for a reason. They had great careers. So, Pino Cuevas was a murderous welterweight puncher, had a ton of title defenses during, at a time when welterweight only had two titleists. Right. Um, you know, Ingemar Johansson was part of one of the greatest series of fights of all time. Great amateur career. You know, I mean, big deal. I mean, it, it, I think the bigger issue isn't who got in that you don't agree with. It's who hasn't got in yet that deserves to be there. So, you know, and they're not on the modern ballot, but I'll give you two examples. Esteban de Jesus, who was Roberto Duran's great rival at, at lightweight. And Rodrigo Valdez, who was a fantastic fighter, who was the second best middleweight probably of the 1970s after Carlos Monzon, he, those guys aren't in the Hall of Fame yet. Those guys belong. Flyweight Pone King Pitch, right? Guy ended the, the reign of Pascual Perez, beat fighting Carrada, three-time world champion. He belongs in the Hall of Fame. So we should try to get those guys in, not worry about who got in before them. We need to, I think there has to be an effort to make sure that everybody who deserves it gets there. That's what's more important. Right, right, no doubt, no doubt, yeah, and and it means a lot to to them and their families uh, to get in for sure, for sure. Well, speaking of the the old timers, uh, um, having spoken to you a little before the the, the pod, I, I know you voted for the old timers ballot. So, um, I, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm not going to go through the names because I'm sure most uh, even folks who listen to my podcast probably don't know who <laughs> a lot of these old time fighters are, but. Who who what was your what's your yeah, process? This is the off year. This is the off year for the for the old timers. Right. And um and so this is the year where it's anybody whose uh most recent fight was no later than nineteen forty two. So you're you're borderline dealing with kind of pioneer types in the sport, guys who there's not a lot of footage of, where you're looking at records, you have a lot of newspaper decisions, which, you know, some of those fights were exhibitions, some weren't, you're not really sure. Um, the one that jumped out of me that I, I made sure and voted for, um, Jimmy Britt, I think is overdue to get into the Hall of Fame. Um, he was kind of, uh, you know, you look at these guys today who, you know, they turn pro and all of a sudden they're fighting world-class guys. Jimmy Britt, in his first 15 fights, 
fought this unbelievable level of competition, beat uh, several Hall of Famers, um, beat Battling Nelson and, and Frank Earn. Um, and then, you know, he had a bunch of losses towards the end, but he had this really compact, crazy career, um, you know, seminal figure in boxing, voted for him. And then there's guys like Ike Weir, um, Dave Holly, you know, just some really great fighters over the years. Tansy Lee is another one that I think is way overdue. Um, if you look at the history of the flyweight division, Jimmy Wilde, of course, you know, still regarded by many as the greatest flyweight of all time. Legend, yeah. But along the way, you know, he... He had to clean out the division. Tansy Lee was 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 a great rival for him. Um, very accomplished fighter, won a ton of fights, so I voted for him. Um, well, let's mention let's easier. mention that let's mention that Tansy Lee was the one who handed uh, Jimmy Wilde his first loss. So <laughs> yeah, he did. So yeah, yeah that's that. Yeah. So when I'm talking about great rival, I mean he he beat Jimmy Wilde when Jimmy Wilde was was hot. So it was like ninety um, something. Wilde defends that loss, <laughs> but. Um, you know, Tansy Lee, I mean, th- there was a little bit of a, a round robin among all these sort of British flyweights back at the, towards the turn of the century. Lee and Wilde were probably the best of the bunch from, from Britain. Um, Joe Simon's also in that group. Um, and, and they all fought each other. And Tansy Lee was, was uh, again, a, another seminal figure in the early part of the formation of that division. So voted for him. Um, yeah, so that's, that's a tougher ballot sometimes because you really got to take your time. I mean, there's not a lot of old ratings to look at. You know, you gotta you gotta do a little research on what's happened in some of the fights. You know, if you can find any footage, that's great. Every once in a while, you might find a few seconds. Um, right. But next year, next year's modern, next year's old timer ballots a little easier. That's the one that has you know the guys who fought from from the '40s through the '80s. Um, you're talking '60s and '70s guys. That's when Valdez and De Jesus and King Petra are all back on the ballot. Um, so, and, and I, I kind of like that ballot more just cause it's a little easier to take a look at the research and, and, uh, but it, it's fun either way. I love, I love a hundred years of history in any sport. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now what's, what's interesting is, you know, I, I saw Dan Raphael had, he had like a women's ballot and an observers and a non-participants. You said that y- y- you don't get sent, like all of the voters don't get sent all of the ballots. Is that a... No, I mean, some of them you got to request. I actually asked this year for the first time to be included on some of those. Um, I, I don't think I asked in time, so I'll try again next year. I, I'll be honest. I've never really cared all that much if I, I vote for non-participants. I think it's great that they get in. Um, I don't have a problem with the guys who have been voted in over the years. I know that there are people who still get mad about, like, Sylvester Stallone. But Sylvester Stallone didn't get in for being a fighter, right? Um, and the history of... And, the Rocky movies are a big part of the history of boxing as, as popular mythology, if not sport. So I don't have a problem with stuff like that. Um, observers voting on other writers or, or people who covered the sport, you know, I, it's never been a priority. I think that I care about voting for the fighters, but you know, I mean, if, if I can add something there, I mean, some of these people, uh, over time, you, 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 you know, their work and you, you, you have an idea of who, maybe should be appreciated in the hall of fame. So that's fine too. Right. Right. And, but and, yeah, everybody doesn't get those ballots. You got to ask over the years. It used to be everybody just got the regular ballot. And then you ask, you know, you might request the other ones. I don't really know if there's a formal process. I mean, I got added to old timers by asking and I appreciated that they allowed me to participate in that category. Right. So, but I asked, that was it. <laughs> well, the women's ballot is, is it's the first time they've had it this year, right? Yeah, and I assumed that we would all get the women's ballot, and we all did. So, 
some people got it. Some people didn't. If I had gotten it, I would have voted. Um, I probably would have voted for Lucia Riker. And, uh, and based on who I know of that was on the ballot, I know Layla Ali was on there. She deserves a vote, obviously. Um, I mean, I don't know if, I don't know where you rank her among the great women fighters, but she was such an important figure um, in between Christy Martin and sort of the, the resurgence of women's boxing in recent years. So, I mean, you know, she was a star and there haven't been a, a lot of stars like that. And she beat everybody she fought. Um, you know, I mean, it helped that she didn't fight in Wolf probably, but who knows? She might've beat Wolf too. So she beat some, she, she beat the, the one person I think that did beat Wolf. So, right. Right, right, right. Yeah, I think they they were both on the ballot. I think Ann Wolf and and, and Leilali were both on the ballot. But yeah, Holly Holm and yeah. Re- Regina Halmish was on there as well. So yeah, yeah. Be, I mean, be... the, the best the best woman fighter I think I've ever seen personally is still Lucia Riker. Um, yeah. But she didn't have the competition that you see today. She didn't have a bunch of people that came through and had Olympic pedigree. And um, but I mean, you go back and watch her. Her physicality is almost unlike anything else do you see in boxing then or now in the women's division? Um, I think it's great that they're getting more attention. Um, you know, I, I think it's great that we're, we're living in an era where Katie Taylor and Clarissa Shields are, are getting the opportunity to, to be bigger stars than they might've been 20 years ago. And I hope the game continues to develop. Absolutely. Yeah. I was just, I was talking to Tom Loeffler about that. Tom used to manage uh, Lucia Riker and, uh, I had um, Lou DelVal's uh, sister, Melissa Salamone, or Melissa DelVal, who was unbeaten and around uh, Lucia's weight class. And, uh, you know, I called Tom. I said, would you want to make that fight? And he's like, yeah. I said, yeah, let's see if we can get it on HBO. And he just kind of, like, laughed. He's like, HBO doesn't do women's fights. And I'm like, well, you know, let, let me talk to Carrie. He's like, go, go ahead. So I did, and, and that's exactly what Carrie told me. HBO doesn't do women's fights, so... Yeah, Lucia Riker, uh, unfortunately, uh, just never got the opportunity to have that that big defining fight. That uh, you know that the fight with Christy Martin was was you know million dollar baby uh, fight was supposed to happen, and she tore her Achilles, unfortunately. But yeah, Lucia is a great fighter. Hope she gets recognized. Yeah, it was tough. I mean, you know, the the women's divisions have have been, you know, uh, as far as some of the bigger American networks over the years have have struggled a lot of the way that some of the lighter weight class men's divisions do. So. You know, for a long time, HBO didn't really go below the junior featherweight division. Um, and then, you know, I mean, Michael Carvajal made air a few times, but as a pay-per-view undercard, um, even as big as he got in the in the 90s fighting Chiquita Gonzalez, he was never a HBO main event guy. Um, you know, it, it's just the way it works out. It, it takes time sometimes to expand the base. And, you know, we're living in a different era now where there's so many platforms that, you can really see everything in a way that you never have been able to before. Um, but I, I, I can understand HBO and Showtime and, and what they chose to program over the years. I mean, they're American networks trying to play to an American audience in the United States. The history of boxing says that, you know, the wealth, the wealth edge really starts to kick in around welterweight. It's why guys move up towards welterweight and then, you know, welterweight, middleweight, heavyweight, they're still the glamour divisions of boxing after all these years, those are still, you know, that's where the most money tends to get made historically. And there's ebbs and flows to that. Middleweight has its down periods. Um, welterweight rarely does, although there are times where welterweight isn't, isn't super rich. Um, but, I mean, and, and we're seeing it right now. I mean, Deontay Wilder is, is, is starting to become a really big public figure in the United States. He's a, he's the kind of guy that gets people talking. 
um, because he's big and he's a heavyweight and he knocks the living hell out of people. So, you know, this is a, this is a country. I mean, it, you remember, Kurt, and, and I've told people before, as big as Mayweather got um, and, and the money he made and, and, and the attention he got is, is unparalleled in almost any era. But you know, and people who, who have seen it know, there's something different when heavyweight is hot. Right. And it, it's a different kind of attention. There's more people asking you about it. And it's because at, at that point of the scale, you're not having mythological arguments anymore, right? It's not, you know, if everybody was the same size, who would win? It's, you know, these are the two baddest dudes on the planet, right? Like these are, are the two heavyweight, you know, the two best heavyweights in the world, whoever that is at a particular moment. And you sort of assume that on their best day, they're beating anybody else in the world. And that's what makes them heavyweights. So, you know, it's, it's good that it's getting hot again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Speaking of, a lot, a lot of great fights have uh, happened in the last uh, few months, really the last six weeks. Um, it, you know, it's, it's been as hot as it's ever been. You figure you had Spence Porter, um, September great 28th. Fight. Great fight. Great Tri- fight. Triple G, Derevianchenko, uh, October 5th. Another great fight. Yeah, that looked good on paper, and then it just blew away expectations. It was way better than it looked going in. <laughs> I mean, it looked good anyways. I mean, you knew they were going to fight. Right. Um, but then, then a damn war breaks out. It was great. It was very entertaining. Absolutely. Better be a Vosdick, uh, October 18th. Um, you know, a week later, Taylor Progre, uh, finals of the World Boxing Super Series. A uh, real grinder that fight was. Um, you know, Canelo, yeah. Canelo Kovalev, uh, November 2nd, and, uh, you know, most recently, uh, Inoue and, and, and Donaire. So, you know, six great fights in, in six weeks. Uh, which... and, what a, and what a wild time to be alive as a boxing fan. Think about this. Yeah. So all those other fights, you, you have as sort of these rational hours. Like Taylor Pergray was early in the day, but at least it was like an afternoon. So, you know. If you're like me, you grew up in the in the eighties or, right. or you know, you remember what it was like to watch a fight at four o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday or Sunday, right? Kind of throwback. But it's a rational hour. It was crazy to think that you had all these people awake all around the world at all different hours watching Inouye Donaire and 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 tweeting about it. And and I realized like here in the United States, the audience was probably not in the millions or even maybe the hundreds of thousands, but the opportunity for fight fans to see a major bantamweight fight from Japan um, that they actually gave a damn about. You just didn't have that 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, you know, when, when guys like Jiro Watanabe were fighting in the 80s, um, those were names in a magazine in the right. United States. You right. heard about them. Yoko Gushikin might get replayed once or twice on on a on an off-brand kind of, you know, there, there were always shows that might show you some of the talent from around the world. But, you know, how many guys... That, that, you know, from, from other parts of the world, you know, Myung Woo Yu and Jung Koo Chang, you guys who are in the Hall of Fame now, how many of those guys never had an American eyeball or even the opportunity to see them until 20 years after their prime on YouTube? Now you're watching this stuff live. You got English commentary. So, you know, it's accessible for people who like commentary. It doesn't bother me one way or the other. Um, but some people like to have commentary they can, that they can understand. I mean, it's cool. I mean, it's a cool time to be a boxing fan. People, it's exciting. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, hey, let's let's talk about the 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 most recent of uh, of those fights. The last uh, the last two I talked about. Let's talk about Kovalev and uh, Canelo. Just uh, in all honesty, it's probably the least, the most tactical, the least exciting of the six fights I mentioned. But uh, thought it was interesting beforehand because you know. Uh, 
you know, you're about as good a fight predictor as, as I know, and, and you had gone on record saying you had absolutely no indication that Canelo could stop Kovalev. And then... Uh... No, and, and I never said he... <laughs> so here's what the thing. I never said he couldn't, right? Like, I would never say anybody can't do something, right? Boxing's crazy. What I said was, I, I, I thought it was strange that there were so many people picking him by knockout, and they were right. They ended up being right. But the indication from Canelo's career was not that he was going to knock out Sergey Kovalev. It was more likely than not that he would win a decision. Um, Because if you look at Alvarez's performances against his better opponents, he doesn't score knockouts very often. Laura, Cotto, he doesn't even necessarily hurt guys. Most of his knockouts have come against guys that you would expect him to knock out, guys who, who have had sort of dicey chins or they're smaller than him. I mean, James Kirkland was an exciting fight, but James Kirkland's not known for, you know, he was known for excitement, not necessarily for having a great chin. He'd been right. dropped a lot, stopped by, you know, a lot less than Canelo. Than Canelo. Um, Amir Khan, I mean, as excited as some people got about that fight, you knew what it was going in. Like, it was how long can Amir Khan stay on his feet before he gets knocked silly? Right. And the answer was six rounds. I mean, Amir Khan, so... And that's not taking anything away from Canelo. I think Canelo has developed into a fantastic fighter. He's excellent defensively. I thought his performance against Danny Jacobs, which a lot of people weren't excited about, was one of the best of his career. He boxed beautifully. He outboxed a guy with good, solid technical ability with length and power. Um, so I just I assumed if he won, he would find a way to outbox Kovalev. Um, I thought Kovalev had enough left in the tank. And I, I realized he's faced. But I thought he had enough left in the tank working off of his jab to keep Canelo outside and have a chance at a decision. Um, and so ultimately I picked Kovalev. Uh, I was wrong. <laughs> Sometimes you're wrong. Right. Um, and, and, and Canelo and Canelo did light him up. So, you know, props to him. I mean, it was a beautiful knockout. And I thought, you know, and, and it's one of those fights that was plenty of debate about, you know, who was winning the rounds prior to that. I favored Kovalev, and, and, you know, having picked him, I know people would be like, well, maybe you're looking for that, but I often score against people I pick, so I, I don't think that was the case. Um, I've always been very impressed with Kovalev's jab, the way he works off of it, his technical acumen, um, but, you know, you got to give Alvarez credit. He kept working, he found the opening, and he put it away. Um, he put the series of punches away. I mean, it, it's one thing to to predict somebody will do something. It's another thing for them to go out and execute, and he executed his game plan uh, in the end and put him away. And that's a great thing about knockouts. We don't have to debate about the scorecards like after the Golovkin fights because uh, they counted to 10. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, like you said, with, with the uh, Jacobs fight, I mean, what, what you're seeing is a guy who's really a complete fighter, you know? He, yeah. If he needs to box, he can box. He can be really slick, you know? I mean, when yeah. he, when he was... I mean, he's another one of those guys in... In recent memory, there are certain guys who their professionalism is just, it, it, is, it is so excellent, the way that they keep themselves in shape all the time. Mayweather, Pacquiao, those guys are always in shape, almost always in shape for their fights. You don't see them walking around heavy between fights. The Klitschko brothers were like that. Bernard Hopkins was like that. They're workaholics on top of everything else. And Alvarez's work ethic is, it, it shows, I mean, you've seen technical development in him. You've seen his uh, his head movement improved. You've seen his combination punching get better. You've seen him him approach different opponents in different ways and, and show adaptability in his game plan. Um, you don't get that without working your ass off. So his his professionalism is hard to underrate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Jacobs fight, you could especially see it because, 
Danny would, you know, I mean, if you had to look at the metrics before the fight, you would say, you know, Jacobs has a faster hand. And uh, and the fact that Canelo was able to slip and just make Jacobs miss, like, badly <laughs> the way he was, was really, really impressive. But then you look yeah, at... Yeah, and I mean, that's one of the ways you can beat somebody who's faster than you. If, right. if you can time that speed um, and, 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 apply, and, and apply your timing in a skilled fashion, then you have a chance to beat speed. Speed's a hard thing to beat. Absolutely. Um, and you have to be quick, you have to be quick enough to overcome a, a deficit in raw athletic speed, um, but you also have to you also have to know how to do it. His head movement is 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 a real asset to him, um, and it's going to keep him it's going to keep him as, as a world class fighter for quite a while. Um, and 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 the great thing about him is he's not he he's got a loaded resume, um, and I know that there are plenty of fights on, in his career so far that have had debate on the scorecards afterwards. But one thing you got to give Alvarez. Um, and he, I know he's having issues with his promoter right now, but Oscar was like this too. He is taking the fights. I mean, he doesn't always pick them the day everybody wants him to, but he's fighting the fights in his era and he's doing what a rainmaker should, which is giving the guys who deserve it a chance to make the biggest payday of their career. And that helps the sport overall, because even if people lose, they can still go on to make more money than they used to because they've had the light shined on them. I mean, it does not hurt in the end. It doesn't hurt Alvarez's career that he got shut out by Floyd Mayweather because it exposed him to such a huge audience. And as he continued to develop, he kept a lot of that audience with him. It, 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 it expanded his fan base in the long run. Um, and that's a good thing. I mean, yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with losing sometimes. I mean, you know, two guys get in the ring, somebody got to lose. Right. Right. Well, what, what I thought was interesting, you know, I talked to Buddy McGirt uh, a few weeks ago, and Buddy was just like, what he the most the thing that most impressed him about Canelo was how much he has improved since the Mayweather fight. Like it, it was clear that they went back to the drawing board after that after that fight, and he really went to school and you know became a much more slick and and complete fighter. What I thought was interesting too against Kovalev is he was so much the smaller guy. Um, but you didn't see it, you know, he wasn't really slipping so much a lot of punches. He 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 put up almost like a winky right like wall of gloves. I mean he was catching most everything on the gloves um from Kovalev. Well, and, and and Kovalev helped on that, right? Kovalev I thought executed a really good game plan for him. He knows that he knows where he is physically, right? He was right. he was basically playing keep away and and using what has been the best weapon of his career, the jab, to try to win off of. Um, and so he just threw the living hell out of the jab. He wasn't <laughs> stepping in with big right hands. He wasn't going for the knockout. He was trying to box and, and maintain a disciplined game plan, a lot like he did in revenging the loss to Elliard there out uh, to, to Alvarez earlier this year. Right. So it wasn't a bad game plan for Kovalev. It ne- wasn't necessarily what people wanted, right? Kovalev right. is known as a puncher over the course of his career, so they're hoping he'll come to kill. Technically speaking, good solid game plan. He just you know. He ran out of uh, he ran out of real estate and got clipped. But right. he, he fought a smart fight for him. I was not unentertained by the fight. It wasn't you know it wasn't it wasn't the fight of the year or anything. It was a good solid professional fight between two very skilled and motivated guys who were trying to do what was best for them to win. Um, and because Kovalev was was working off his jab and not stepping in with the right hand, not going for the knockout, it gave Alvarez the opportunity to sit outside and just pick shots. Right um, and and. Based on the ultimate result, we know that if Kovalev comes forward sooner, he probably gets knocked out sooner. He could not. He he couldn't take the flush shots from from 
Canelo Alvarez. I mean, you you saw it in the ring. Yeah, which is which is interesting, right? Because as you said, I mean, you look at Canelo's KO percentage, and it's not particularly high. And he was jumping up two divisions, so you, you definitely would not. I mean, I didn't expect him to be able to 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 absolutely like put Kovalev's lights out. You know, you're thinking, okay, maybe Kovalev gases and and you know Canelo throws a hundred shots at him and and eventually you know cuts him down. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I expected Kovalev to win. But the he er- didn't do it with one shot. But he didn't do it with one shot either, right? He 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 caught him with one that hurt him, right. and then he put a combination together behind it. Kovalev doesn't see any of that coming. Um, I mean, once you're in the ring, you know, I mean, there might be a little bit of a size difference, but, you know, if you put a series of shots together that somebody can't see coming, um, that can be ballgame. And sometimes that's what helps smaller guys when they're moving up in weight because they can get those shots off quicker than the bigger guys are used to seeing them. Right, right. Yeah, it was a couple shots, but it wasn't a lot of shots. I think it was like a chopping right that may or may not have hurt him that started it, and then, and then uh, Canelo loaded up on that left hook. Shots, yeah, yeah. Then he loaded up on that hook, and that was pretty much it. I mean, he, you know, Kovalev was just hanging there when he hit him with that final right hand. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, Alvarez. Look, Alvarez might not be Julian Jackson, but um, he's definitely got heavy hands. Um, he's an excellent body puncher. So, I mean, he he hits hard. Um, I. I I didn't think that I I just didn't think that it, the smart pick going into the fight was a knockout. Um, you never rule it out as impossible, and the reason you don't rule anything out as impossible is because you know, Alvarez knocked out Kovalev in the eleventh round. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But uh, so what, what what's your position on, on the delay on on the zone uh, opting to wait until? Um, a very popular MMA fight ended uh, before sending out uh, Canelo Alvarez, the face of the sport, the superstar of boxing. Um, do you think? Uh, do you think? Just, it, 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 I mean, we don't know the numbers, so we don't know whether it, it was a, a worthwhile business decision. But I, I, you know, they've gotten a lot of blowback. Um, just, just as you were watching it, what, what, what was your feeling uh, about the delay? I had several people uh, around me who had come over to watch the fight who left because um, it got too late. So the delay actually, you know, there's a lot of people out there, especially people with kids um, who might be visiting somebody. Um, you know, at some point you yeah, have to make a let's, judgment call. Let's say we're, we're on the East Coast too, right? You and I are both on yeah, the East Coast. And, and that's what I was going to get at, right? If right. you're on the West Coast, that delay sucked um, because you're sitting around with no fight to watch. But at least you're on the West Coast, right? So the delay takes you to about 10 o'clock. Um, that's a, it's, it's unfortunate, but it, at least it's only 10 o'clock. Right. Start times for boxing are already a problem if you're on the East Coast. And you and I have talked about this, you know, before in, in other venues. I've talked to other people about it. You know, boxing puts itself in a, in a, in a tricky position with having all of its big fights on Saturday night starting so late on the East Coast because that 18 to 49 demographic that everyone cherishes. You know, they might stop once or twice a year for a fight and, and you know, be around. I mean, because even when start times are good, fights are ending at midnight, 1230, 1 o'clock. That's a tough sell on a regular basis to get people to give up their Saturday nights on the East Coast that deep into it. Right. I saw someone tweet, uh, and I don't remember who it was, that said, you know, if they had grown up on the East Coast, they might not be a boxing fan. Because mm. when they were a kid, they wouldn't have been able to stay up and watch a fight. Somebody would have put them to bed. Right. Um, when I was growing up out, out on the West Coast, you know, the, the Mike Tyson fight was on at six thirty seven o'clock at night. Um, when, when, 
Tyson fought Holyfield, the main event started around, you know, 9, 9.30 on the West Coast. That's a great time to watch a fight. Right. It's not, a, I mean, pay-per-view undercards used to start at 6 o'clock um, on the West Coast. It, but on the East Coast, you're dealing with a different animal. Um, and so I think that delay, um, if it helps them get subscribers, it's great. Um, I don't anticipate that being a regular occasion. Um, but I just thought it was unfortunate because you're really pushing the bounds of losing whole chunks of the country to straight up sleep. Um, especially when you have all of this video on demand now where you can just go to bed and wake up in the morning, not turn on your phone, just go watch the fight for breakfast. I mean, you don't have to stay up and watch it. Um, so I, I wasn't a fan of it. I'm not as critical as some, um, you know, by all indications, the Canelo Kovalev promotion was not the most successful promotion of Canelo's career. Um, I mean, I'm sure you realize that there was, didn't feel like there was a lot of buzz about it. Right. Um, you know, it wasn't one of those fights where, where everyone was talking about it all over the place. Um, you know, it's unfortunate. I mean, you know, you got a guy going up two weight classes, fighting one of the better light heavyweights of the decade, but it also plays into the idea. I mean, Golovkin did a great, it was really built into uh, a big gate attraction. He never did the, the pay-per-view numbers and stuff, but he became a gate attraction. Kovalev always struggled to sort of become an attraction outside of the hardcore boxing sphere. So, you know, I, I look, sitting around for 90 minutes with dead air sucks. I, I don't care what coast you're on, but on the East Coast, it's even harder. So I would hope we don't see a lot of that in the future. Yeah, I was, you know, uh, at at the very least, I mean, they, they should have, you know, potentially anticipated uh, some sort of delay like that. And I mean... Listen, get a damn swing fight on TV. Exactly, fire up, uh, fire up another fight. I mean, listen, if if it doesn't go off, you you know, I mean, you know, walkout bouts after the main event happen all the time, you know. But have that fight ready at the ready, because yeah, that, that's just way too much dead air. I mean, the 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 visual of those guys both like sleeping, you know, resting on a couch was just so it was just ugh, it was horrible. It was a horrible look for Desone. I thought. <coughs> yeah, it wasn't a good day. Absolutely, absolutely. So I guess the question now is, you know, where you know what where does Canelo go from here? I mean, I guess officially he has title belts, uh, some more dubious than others, uh, in three weight classes. Um, what what would you like to see? I mean, obviously there there are fights at at light heavyweight, super middleweight, and middleweight that would be great. Where where would you like to see him go? I would love to see Alvarez fight Callum Smith. Yeah, that's a great fight. I would love that fight. I really like that fight. Um, It would give them a chance to actually win the WBA title from the primary titleist that they have uh, at 168 pounds. I do not consider Alvarez a four-division belt holder. Um, And, you know, even even as as much as I would prefer that we had one world champion per class, you can't count every WBA belt. It's just silly. Right. Right. But – he could go back to middleweight and fight Golovkin. He could make Golovkin come to 168. He could fight Billy Joe Saunders. Um, although, me personally, I'm not... At, Billy Joe Saunders is not the most scintillating fighter in the world. I'm not sure that'd be an exciting fight. Um, but Callum Smith and Canelo Alvarez would be great. If he stuck around a light heavyweight and really wanted to fight Dimitri Bivol and Archer better be a, you know, Godspeed, go do it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if, if, if I was picking right now, if I could see any of his, uh, of the next fights, I think a, a fight between him and Callum Smith would be really exciting. That's the one I like. I like Callum Smith a lot. He's a good fighter. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I'm I'm very disappointed that you know uh, Eddie hasn't done more with him since the World Boxing Super Series. I mean, Smith is. I mean, he you know the way he put out Groves. I mean, I did not think he was going to blow away Groves the way he did. So, 
Uh, I mean, it was competitive, hey, I, competitive I, I, fight, not, but it was a great not knockout. To humble, not to humble brag or anything. Not to humble brag. But <laughs> you, since I, you I got the Kovalev <laughs> thing so wrong, you know, I picked Callum Smith to win the World Boxing Super Series when the field was announced. So, <laughs> yep, yep, yep. I remember I, that. I think a lot of him. I mean, you got to see him up close, too. I mean, Callum Smith, is a, I, 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 he was on press row at a, at a fight I was at. Um, he's, he's huge for super middleweight. Uh, I mean, he's just tall. There's a big frame on him. He's a big kid. Got a lot of skills. I'm not sure he could beat Canelo. Um, I mean, you know, we, we, we haven't seen him super tested yet. We've right. seen the Groves fight. Um, but I, I think there's enough there. It would be an interesting fight. He can fight any of those guys. Anybody from 160 to 175 that Alvarez wants to fight, he can fight him. He's still Saul Alvarez. He can pick and choose who he wants to fight. Um, and I expect him to pick good fighters. So. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was surprised. I mean, he Canelo actually threw the name uh, Charlo out there at 160. That would be tremendous. But I'm like, listen, if you're calling out PBC guys, I mean, at 168, I would love to see him and David Benavides too. I think that would be a tremendous, tremendous showdown between those two guys. Gilberto Ramirez, a David Benavides, any of those guys would be interesting fight. Um, Caleb Plant, I don't, I don't know who really is going to want to see Caleb Plant. He's a, he's a tough out for anybody. Sure. Um, there's a lot of good things that could happen at super middleweight. If Alvarez decided to plant his flag there, you have a set of, of young, exciting titleists there um, that you could mix and match. And Alvarez is one of the few fighters who has the name and profile that he can erase some of these sides of the streets arguments that come up. I mean, oh, there's absolutely. nobody in the in the pvc or on the top rank side that if alvarez said i want you they won't try to do business absolutely 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 so all right so let's uh let's get to uh what i thought i mean and there have been so i mean i I literally have like i've been kind of noting you know since january like fights that are kind of you know fight of the year candidates I'm, i'm literally up to like 29 right now there's been so many great fights but I mean, I mean, I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm suffering from recency bias. I, I really thought that you know Inouye and and, and Donaire was to me the, the the fight of the year. A um, lot of great fights this year, and, and this one literally had me on the edge of my seat. I mean, may, maybe because of Inouye's uh, reputation coming into it, but uh, you know the fact that both guys were hurt a couple of times. Um, and you know, we've subsequently found out that Donaire like did some serious damage to Inouye. I mean, he broke his right orbital bone and his nose and he did it early on. Um, just a great, great fight. Give me, give me your impressions of the fight. I was blown away. It was a great fight. I expected Donaire to be competitive. Um, I said before that one, I, you know, there were some people expecting Inouye to blow him out kind of like he has his last few opponents. I didn't think that would happen. Donaire is a different animal. Donaire's always been durable. Um, I mean, Donaire's been stopped once and he got stopped in his fifth weight class, um, you know, up at, up at, up at featherweight against Nicholas Walters, who was one of those guys who with rehydration clauses came into the ring pretty big. And, and that's not to say that Donaire didn't also, you know, benefit from rehydration clauses at lower weight classes. That's kind of how the game works now. But you're talking about a guy who has taken big shots from Guillermo Rigandau and Vic Darchinian and, you know, he doesn't go anywhere. Um, and he's been in wars recently, like with Cesar Juarez. I mean, he's just, he's a durable guy. I did think he would eventually get stopped. That didn't happen. Um, it almost happened. Uh, the referee, um, might have, depending on how you saw the count, uh, when Donaire went down, um, you could be, find that questionable, but I think Donaire would have beat the count anyways. Um, he took the referee's count, not 10 seconds, you know, would that debate can go on somewhere else. It was just a great fight, and it's the one I think this year 
that will stick in people's memories the longest. It was one of those nights, like Eric, or mornings, excuse me, like Eric Morales and Marcos Maidana, where this older fighter summons up this, you know, last, probably last, but who knows, gut check, incredible performance against an off-the-charts talent. Um, and, and in that sense, it was better than Morales Maidana. Or even, I mean, Noya, in a way, is a different kind of talent. And Donaire reminded us why he was a different kind of talent at 112 and 118 pounds. It was also a reminder that sometimes the economic pressure to go up and wait stops fighters from being the very best they could have been. What might have been if Nodino Donaire, after the wins over Montiel, uh, had decided to stay at Bantamweight for years? Would we remember him as one of the great Bantamweights like Zorate or, or Olivares? I don't know. Um, maybe not. I mean, maybe an Abner Mars would have beat him. Maybe an Anselmo Moreno would have outboxed him. Um, instead, he chased higher up the scale. He, you know, that was greatness of its own regard. It's not a wrong choice. It's just a different choice. Um, but he, he had never lost at Bantamweight, and he showed that at Bantamweight, he's still a beast to deal with. And it was just, it was, it was, uh, in a way, one, but Donaire stole the show. It was, it was really memorable to watch. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. The, and he the, came to get him. I mean, he came in there against the, the most, one of the most killer punchers in boxing, one of the best finishers in boxing who had Donaire hurt and on the ropes more than once. And he survived onslaught in the 10th, 11th, the fifth round. Nobody else from 108 to 118 pounds has withstood when, when Inouye has them locked in and really hurt. He puts those guys away. I mean, Donaire had to dig so deep for that. It, it was, again, I, I don't mean to sound sort of in awe, but I'm in awe. It was it was an incredible performance. Absolutely, and 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 one of the one of the great things about the fight too was you know there were, um, you know no one had seen Inoue you know really have to work that hard and 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 have to um, face adversity and 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 in this fight you know he really impressed me with his quickness with with his ability to box with his ability to counter. I mean, you pretty much saw his whole game in there because Donaire forced him to 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 dig deep and and think and and you know and uh, come up with a plan B and a plan C in this fight, you know, and, and he showed that he's got it um, because you know if uh, anything less than like a hundred percent from Inoue and and Donaire wins that fight. I mean, Donaire really came yeah. to win. And uh, oh, I mean, Inoue dug deep. Inoue Inoue dug deep. I mean, when you realize that he fractured his orbital bone in the second round how much that has to hurt like hell and and he's got a busted nose and he's bleeding for the first time and he's cut and and he he summons it up and 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 finds a way to uh to 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 endure to get through that eighth and ninth round where Donaire was coming to turn the tide in the tent right you found out what you found out what the depth of character in him is too and it doesn't discount what he was doing before that fight i mean the thing about in a way we knew he had the offensive talent. You know how special he is. I mean, this is a guy that, that, you know, six fights into his career, he knocked out Adrian Hernandez at 108 pounds, wins the title when Hernandez is one of the, you know, one or two best light flyweights in the world. Not a peak period for the division, but that's still, you know, that was who was there, and he's a baby as a pro at that point. Going back two fights later, knocks out Omar Narvaez in two rounds. And I know people will look and say, well, you know, Narvaez was a stats guy, right? He's one of those guys that because he fought at home a lot, he racked up a lot of title defenses. But look, nobody walked through Omar Narvaez. He, he, 
he he including Donaire. Donaire to a certain degree. <laughs> Donaire went to he went the distance with Donaire in his first loss. He just went the distance with Delani Tete, and he's in his forties. Um, I mean, nobody goes through him, and he's fought other good fighters over the years. I mean, guys who who are kind of forgotten but were legit contenders like Bernardi Mom, um, and he goes through those guys. I mean, he is, and I've I've said this before. I think I tweeted this. He goes through dur- in a way goes through durable professionals, guys that other people don't stop in a way that reminds me a little bit of a young Roy Jones, just a little bit, right? right. Like R- Roy Jones, when he was coming up, he would knock out guys that just didn't get knocked out. I mean, Thelani Malinga went rounds with U- Chris Eubank and Nigel Benn, beat Nigel Benn in their second fight, and Roy knocked him out in six rounds. Right. Roy took a guy like Glenn Wolf, who went to distance with guys like James Tony. And he makes him, and he he, he he gets him out of there with one body shot. Um, in a way, does freaky stuff like that. I mean, he's, he's a freaky offensive talent, um, but he he's now had the sort of test that should sort of frighten people going forward. I mean, now in a way knows more about himself. He he knows that he can take it, um, and he knows that that what happens when when you push him up against the wall, he knows he can fight off the wall. Um, and so you take all that freaky offensive talent. And now you put it through the machine where you mature it a little bit. Um, I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe we'll get that special run at Bantamweight that Donaire might have been capable of. Or the economics of boxing could force Inouye up the scale before he's ready. Because one thing I saw, I don't think he's ready to go past Bantamweight. He's not a big Bantamweight. He's right. five foot four. He's not a big frame guy. You know, everybody's not Manny Pacquiao. Right. Flyweights don't go to welterweight. That's a rare thing. You shouldn't expect that. Um, you should expect guys to be great where they are. And I think in a way can be great where he is for another couple of years. You've got a loaded bantamweight field. You've got guys like Juan Francisco Estrada, one division below who could come up. I mean, in a way has plenty around him to keep him busy. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so funny as I was watching the fight and I was watching, uh, Kenny Adams in, uh, in Daenerys corner, I was having flashbacks to when Kenny Adams had, uh, Vince Phillips, a veteran fighter knock out another young phenom uh, in Kostya Zoo, you know, and 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 with Donaire bouncing those right hands off of Inui's head, I was just like, oh man, is this is this a replay? But oh, this came so close. I mean, even even when uh, Donaire looked like he was done with with that body shot, you know, um, you know, he just such a wily veteran just sat back and he cracked Inui with with about as good a hook as he can throw, and. Yeah. I, and and I I thought in a way was hurt, and that Daenerys was just too hurt to follow up. <laughs> but oh man, what a moment that was! Because that you know, and in a way, just like you know, definitely took a moment to like digest that left hook, but then got back on the attack. I was like, wow, th- this is just an unbelievable fight, unbelievable fight. So glad yeah, I mean, I got there, to see there are some fights. Sometimes you get those old man, younger guy fights that just you know, it, it's a it's a trial by fire for the young guy, and it's a it's a it's a, a moment in time for the veteran and you just, you sit back and enjoy it and appreciate what they gave you. And what they gave us on Thursday was, was special. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I guess, you know, we'll, we'll talk about, uh, in a way, what, what, what's next for him. I mean, I saw online that he'd like to, uh, avenge uh, his brother's loss to, uh, WBC champ, uh, Nordinu Bali. That was on the undercard. And that was a really competitive fight, uh, despite the, the, the scorecards. Ubali, French-Moroccan southpaw, two-time Olympian. He's had a really good run of late, right? He beat Rashi Warren. Um, Arthur Villanueva, who I, I saw give uh, Luis Neri a really tough non-title fight. He dropped Neri, in fact. 
and uh, and now Takuma Inui. So, how, how do you see uh, Inui Ubali fight playing out? Um, I I think he would knock Ubali out. Um, I I noticed in the in the fight with Takuma that when Takuma got his legs under him a little bit after you know because Ubali was sort of overwhelming him early, but he landed some right hands um, that clipped Ubali on the chin and backed him up. You know, it got got his attention. Um, if that had been his brother, uh, it's a different story. Right. Um, Takuma is a, is a good, solid fighter, but the power in the family all kind of went one direction. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but I mean, I want to see it. Uh, right. you, you don't know. I mean, Bali's a big, strong guy. He's got a good pedigree. He's a good fighter. Um, and he's actually, in my opinion, he is the perfect first opponent for Inouye in the United States. Um, you get him started with a unification fight. Inouye's already been on US TV once. You don't have to do the setup fight. Bring him in, put him in a unification, tell people how good he's already been, and then keep his level of competition up. I mean, you could do Ubali. If you beat Ubali, he's got the WBC belt. As long as the WBC doesn't, you know, franchise him or whatever the hell, then <laughs> uh, then his his mandatory would likely be Luis Neri if Neri right. gets past Emmanuel Rodriguez right. on the undercard of Wilder and Ortiz. That's a really good, well-made fight. Um, we'll see what Rod- where Rodriguez is after he got pummeled by Inouye. We'll see. I mean, we just saw Neri get Juan Carlos Piano off of Piano's first round knockout loss to Inouye, and right. Piano gave Neri some fits. I mean, Absolutely. he didn't beat him. He, he, you know, Neri was better. But I mean, I've thought for a couple years that the the best fight you could make at bantamweight is Neri and Inouye. And Absolutely. I know Neri has had some issues. He, he, you know, he failed a, a test and he came in overweight for the rematch with Yamanaka. But he can fight. <laughs> he can yeah. just flat out fight. He's a good Absolutely. fighter. Um, and then Estrada and Inouye just feels like unfinished business, right? Right. And Estrada has said he wouldn't mind fighting him. He'd be going for a title in the third weight class. Um I mean, we know we can take a shot. He took big shots from Frisiket Sarungvisai. He took shots from Roman Gonzalez. Um, Inouye's probably a little different, a little bigger than those guys. But, I mean, I want to see it. That's a beautiful fight. Um, and then you've also, Gimbo Rigondeau has come back down the scale. And mm-hmm. if he wins his next fight, he'll have one of these WBA subtitles. Um, technically, that could potentially make him a mandatory for Inouye. Um, he's never lost below 130 pounds, so... You know, you could have another interesting crossroad, old man, young man kind of fight there. Um, and then you got the winner of Delani Tete and John Rio Casamero. Um, if Inouye has the opportunity to be a four-belt titleist and absolutely unify the division, that's a rare opportunity. Um, I mean, I'd like to see it all. I mean, there's three or four or five fights you could make at 118 before you start thinking about, all right, Inouye's done what he can do here. What's next? And... You know, 122 has interesting options. I mean, you got a unified titleist in Danny Roman. You got Emmanuel Navarrete, who is just that is a that is a physical challenge at 122 for anybody. That is a big junior featherweight. Um, but I'm not. I don't need to see those fights yet. I want to see him finish his work at bantamweight and see how good he really is and what looks like physically his best weight class. Right, right. Yeah, I think I saw something Woodsy posted that, that Aram was talking about uh, Navarrete. Uh, Maybe in the first or second Eventually. fight. Eventually, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, listen, Tete is also in, the, in that ESPN family. I think he's a Frank Warren fighter who has to deal with Aram. So um, those guys seem to be the leading contenders. But I, I think, yeah, I think the Ubali fight to me, like like, like you said, that, that makes the most sense. They both have momentum. They were both on the same card. Um, it really makes a lot of sense for them to 
to hook up in a unification. I'd love to see that one. Definitely. Look, and I get it. If he goes up before he needs to, I get it. You know, the money gets better. Um, each in- individual weight class you go up. I mean, you look at Manny Pacquiao's career. Um, his purses got bigger every time he went up the scale. I mean, he made more money at 26 than he did at 22, more at 30. And part of that is, you know, he had time to mature as a star. But, you know, I mean, there's also the, there's only so much money sometimes for a 122-pound fight. Uh, you know, in the U.S. market, size matters. I mean, it, it's not fair necessarily, but economically, history says it's important. So, you know, if he has to go up because that's where the money is, I understand. But I, I from a from a competitive standpoint, I want to see, you know, I would personally like to see somebody maximize their prime at the weight that's best for them. And I, I think that's a, that would be a good thing. Absolutely. I mean, would you, I mean, uh, Nonito Donaire is, is, is such a, uh, a, a beloved fighter because he's such a gentleman. Um, he's kind of reminiscent of Alexis Arguello, just, just such a class guy. Um, yeah, he seems like a good dude. And everybody I know that knows him, I don't know him personally, but everybody I know that, know that does, I mean, they, he's just, he's a class act. I mean, I've never heard a bad word about him as a person. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Obviously, you know, a, a rematch would be intriguing, but I mean, would you would you rather see Nonito kind of hang him up at this point or 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 continue and and continue at bantamweight? I mean, I think bantamweight is we'll look back historically that was probably the best weight for Donaire. Um I don't know how much how many more of those nights he has. Um, we saw Morales. He still had one more pretty intriguing night. I mean, the first Danny Garcia fight, uh, he was competitive. Um, but then the second Danny Garcia fight, it was just unnecessary. Um, I mean, I'm not one to tell anybody when to retire. That's your, it's your body, your choice kind of thing. Um, you know, you gotta, you gotta decide what you want to do. Um, I don't need to see a rematch of that fight right now. If Donaire picked up another good win or two at, at Bantamweight and they did it again, great for them. Um, you know, but I, I just, I, it's hard to imagine it keeps getting much better for Donaire at, at 36 going on 37, 38. I mean, you know, there's, there's a point where, where father time wins. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I was thinking maybe, uh, cause he and Tete never got to fight in the, the world boxing super series semifinals. You know, if, if he wanted to continue, I, I wouldn't mind seeing that one. But, uh, Tete's got, Tete's got his hands full in his next fight. Captain he does. going to be a tough fight for him. Absolutely. Casemiro is, can be streaky, but he's a, he's a big puncher. And, uh, you know, I mean, Tete's been stopped before. I mean, it's been a long time and he was young in his career, but, um, you know, that's a, that's a fascinating fight. That's going to be one to, to, for hardcore fans. I hope they circle the calendar. That's a good fight. Absolutely. Absolutely. So getting back to the, the world boxing super series for a second. I mean, obviously both, uh, the in a way Donaire, Donaire, I don't, I don't want to, <laughs> it's, I always say Donaire. I mean, I've heard people pronounce it Donare, but I'm going to say Donaire. Um, and, and the Taylor Progray fights the last couple of weeks. I mean, both finals of the world boxing super series. Um, you know, I, the world boxing super series, you know, I've, I've always been a huge supporter of it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, such a great concept. Um, you know, they have had, you know, money problems, which are pretty well documented and, and full disclosure. I, my, my law firm represented, uh, the Bell Entertainment who were plaintiffs with, uh, Regis Progray in a recent litigation against Camosa. <laughs> so, uh, so we documented some of those things, but, uh, but there's no denying that these tournaments, you know, once the fighters are in the ring, they've been brilliant and, and an absolute boon for the sport. 
Um, you know, Lou had a huge complaint about neither final, uh, you know, in a way, Daener or, or, or Taylor Progray being in the U.S. and that the World Boxing Super Series is wasting a big opportunity to get exposure in the U.S. Um, you know, certainly the, the in a way, you know, Daener fight was on at a time when few in the U.S. could watch it. But I think it's a really interesting issue. I mean, the flip side of Lou's argument is that, you know, boxing's a world sport. And uh, Lou definitely got some stick, uh, you know, on Twitter from fans in Europe and Asia who thought it was, you know, really short-sighted to only view boxing through a U.S. lens. Um, Inui clearly sold out a, a 20,000-seat arena in Tokyo, and, and it looked like the O2 in London was sold out for Pro Gray and, and Taylor a few weeks ago. I think it's, it's, it's another $20,000 crowd. And we've seen uh, Anthony Joshua sell out stadiums in England, and he was very reluctant to come to the U.S. He didn't want to come. And you got Tyson Fury, who top rank brought to the U.S., and you know he's having a tough time selling tickets in Vegas. So I, I guess the question is, you know, do the stars of the sport even need to come to the U.S. to showcase themselves for big fights, and or are they better off staying home where they're popular? You know, is is it too okay, tough um, to sell? Look, it depends. Go ahead. It, it, it depends, right? It's it's on a kind of a per fight basis. Look, in the long run, the the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is still here. The biggest money-making opportunity remains in the United States for if if you can hit a certain ceiling, right? Everybody's not going to come here and be, you know, a superstar. And so, you know, if you, a lot of guys are better off staying probably where they are because they'll make more money. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, if, if you want to make the kind of money that Manny Pacquiao or Floyd Mayweather uh, made in their career or Mike Tyson or Evander Holyfield, our pay-per-view market creates a an economic opportunity are meaning the united states um that doesn't really exist anywhere else i mean it, it's we charge more uh we have more we, we have more people who have been programmed to buy um so the biggest fights in history and, and the biggest economic you know possibility is still here but that doesn't apply to everybody everybody's not going to come here and become a megastar um so if you can sell out a hundred thousand seat arena in the uk or do 20,000 in Japan then and, and pick your spots to come over here, then that makes sense too. Would it have been nice to have some of those fights over here in the United States? Yeah. But for me, it's more important. We got the fights period. Right. And, you know, and, and look, if Donaire and in a way happens here, because Donaire is known to the U S audience, you would have had more eyeballs here in the United States. If it's on us TV, at a time where more Americans are maybe used to watching a fight. That would have been good. But in a way, it's coming here anyways next. And so he's going to have plenty of opportunities to make an impression. Um, And at the end of the day, it was still a bantamweight fight. And so your audience potential is probably not as big um, as it would be higher up the scale. Um, You know, I'm not giving, why give Lou grief? I mean, he's not saying anything wrong there. It's just, you know, every fight can't be here. Um, and every great fight has never been here. Um, so, I mean, look, the execution of the World Boxing Super Series has been inconsistent. There's been money issues. The scheduling issues this year prevented probably, you know, I mean, in a way just broke his orbital bone, so he probably wasn't going to fight again this year anyways. But, you know, you look at the first round of tournaments, it was done in time so that Alexander Usyk could come back and have a third fight in 2018 that Tony Bellew fight, that was really good. Um, so that was good. Right. But, you know, this year, the way the schedule worked out, nobody gets that third fight this year. So Absolutely. that's unfortunate. They can't immediately capitalize. But look, in the ring, what do you have to argue about? 
Right. You've had a fight of the year contender in the first cruiserweight tournament between Dortikos in and, and Gatiev in the semifinals. Absolute war. One of the great cruiserweight fights ever. Taylor and Pagrai, fight of the year candidate. Both semifinal fights. Good, solid fight. Um, the Bantamweight tournament, you had you had this unlikely story of Donaire reaching the final in the twilight of his career. You had, in a way, absolutely annihilating people in the first two rounds. And then you get a fight of the year candidate. So in the ring, it's hard to argue with what we've seen. You can make an argument it would have been better for the American audience to get more exposure to it. But there's a global audience out there and lots of people worldwide who have seen those fights. So... You know, I mean, I'm going to just worry about what what we got in the ring. And in the ring, it's hard to argue with the World Boxing Super Series. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've been a a huge advocate of it. And and I think it's, you know, if if not necessarily that organization, but, you know, the the tournament style, um, you know, uh, brackets that they have um, for for each division, I think, you know, it's it's, it's what every other sport does. So I, I think it's really a model for the sport. I mean... I guess Lou's point, you know, with the with the World Boxing Super Series, it's a great tournament, but it's falling apart financially, you know, you know, in, in part because they haven't really cracked the U.S. market and gotten a foothold here. But obviously, the tournament's that's produced. Part you know, of it, that's part of it. The other part, the other part, and and I, I, you know, I this isn't the. I would love in the ring. We're seeing what happens when boxing is run like a sport, like any other, right? Like right. you get competition and you best get great outcomes. The best. You yeah. get fights at the right time. Right, but. Boxing doesn't isn't like other sports. I mean, boxing isn't has never been about organization. It's about draws, um, and that's that's that push pull. Um, when you have tournaments, you don't necessarily get to build draws, right? So, you know, it would have been better if you could constantly have round robins in other divisions, and then the stars would emerge through competition. Um, I would prefer that better. There was a time when more of that happened. There has to be a way to balance building a draw with building, you know, competition. Because that's just kind of the way boxing is now. I, I, I wish it could get better, but they, 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 that's where you see that imbalance, right? The WBSS was competition heavy, but it wasn't necessarily draw heavy. Although, you know, they put those finals in places where they could draw um, a lot of them. So Taylor Pergray was in a good place because Taylor could sell tickets. In a way, could sell tickets at home. So they at least found places to put those fights where they could maximize the drawing potential in the moment. Right, right. Yeah. In a way, Donaire isn't doing... In a way, Donaire is not doing 20,000 seats in the United States. It's unlikely. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think, you know, obviously a large part of the problem is uh, the, the three main promoters over here, um, you know, PBC, um, Top Rank, you know, Golden Boy, um, they, they, they haven't put their fighters in the tournament, you know, and, and ideally the promoters over here would embrace the tournament concept and either work with the, the World Boxing Super Series or organize tourneys amongst themselves, I mean, do you think there will be a tipping point where either Aram or Heyman or, you know, Steven Espinoza uh, embraces the concept and, and organizes something? I mean, I know, honestly, Top Rank has kind of done something like this at lightweight, you know? I mean, they've got Lomachenko and and Lopez, you know, it's not like a formal tournament, but, you know, they, they've, they've kind of, you know, got them on a collision course to unify the titles, and, and uh, they've got the light heavyweights unifying, um, and I, and I've seen, you know, J-Rock on, on, on Twitter talk about a junior middleweight tournament, which is certainly a possibility since PBC has all the pieces. But when, you, you know, do, do you think these guys will, 
we'll we'll finally get it that you know fights leading to fights you know like playoffs and other sports you know does draw interest with the fans i mean that's how, that's how the other sports tell their narrative you know and and have a championship every year i think that and i think we talked about this last time i was on i think that for fans in the us pay attention to who's got chunks of divisions because you are seeing that if one stable has a preponderance of talent in a division, you're seeing a lot of clash. So light heavyweight, you were starting to see that unfold. Why? Because top rank can kind of, that's, that's where they can really deliver in ring quality to the people who are watching on ESPN. I mean, they have enough talent to give you consistent quality. The PBC is loaded at welterweight and junior middleweight. Now, that's not a good place to be if you're Terrence Crawford, but for the rest of the division, you can keep having fights. You can get Pacquiao Thurman and Porter Spence all in the same year, and winners can work towards each other. I think boxing has always kind of worked like that. I mean, when when you know when HBO had a bunch of the welterweights, you know, you got an informal tournament with Ike Corte and Pernell Whitaker and Oscar De La Hoya and Felix Trinidad. You know, when Don was able to sign Bernard Hopkins, you got a middleweight tournament. Um, I think you're always going to get these sort of informal round robins when you have enough talent under one umbrella where it makes sense and there's a draw to make it happen. Um, do I think we're going to see, you know, big tournaments and round robins across the aisle? No, not in this market, not anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's. But, but in places, but I'll say this we are seeing people work across the aisle at heavyweight. Right. Because Tyson Fury and, and Deontay Wilder, although they, I, I, I think that they would have been better off rematching sooner. Absolutely. They're going to fight again next year if Wilder gets past Ortiz. And you've got, you know, you had an opportunity for Ruiz to go fight Joshua. If he beats Joshua again and Wilder gets past Fury, you know, you can do more unification. If not, you know, you've at least got Joshua and whoever emerges from Fury and Wilder. If Joshua wins a rematch, then you have the possibility for next year. I mean, that's such a big economic fight that it, 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 it at some point people have to work together. Um, it, it might take longer than you want it to, i.e., you know, Pacquiao and Mayweather, but eventually people have to work together because there's just too much money not to. But in a lot of divisions, you're never going to have that there's too much money not to argument. I mean, you know, you can make you, you can make good excellent fights like Pacquiao and Thurman and Spence and Porter and they don't have to go do business with Crawford and I'm not saying this is good or bad it just is the nature of things because there's not so much money on the table to fight Crawford that it matters to anybody except really hardcore fans if they see that fight next or a year from now right right yeah I mean obviously my 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 dream would be these guys to 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 realize that you know people watch big fights they want you know the why is tyson fury you know only drawing you know certain amount because he hasn't you know he's not fighting anybody (laughs) so no one wants to see these yeah i mean look if fury had come over that also shows you though how sort of top heavy the drawing is in heavyweight right now right like heavyweight's been more exciting recently and the uk market was really lit up because you you know before he had his you know troubles with the ped test you had Chisera and White and Joshua and all these guys, and they were selling tickets. They were making good fights, but that was in an isolated market. wasn't necessarily crossing over for rating success in the United States. The U.S. heavyweight market at the moment is Deontay Wilder. If Andrew Ruiz can beat Anthony Joshua, that might expand by two. But I mean, there's there's not there's not a bunch of guys Fury can fight 
that are going to turn the lights out and get people super excited. There's really, it's, it's, it's a, it's a more competitive division than it was when the Klitschko's were on top. And that's not a knock on the Klitschko's. They just dominated everybody. But until you have a little more diversification of talent and more people who are familiar in this particular market, um, you know, who's Fury really supposed to fight that people are going to get excited about? That's why he's stunt, you know, that's why he's doing smart stunts like going on WWE. He's getting his name out there. Right. Right, right. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the the U.S. Uh, heavyweight talent pool is is extremely shallow. Extremely shallow. It's Deont- I mean, it's Deontay Wilder and Anthony and 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 Andy Ruiz. And right now, that's all four of the major alphabet titles. That's exciting. Um, Ruiz got a lot of attention, but you know, right now he's a guy who won one fight. We got to see what happens when he win- if he can win a second one. I mean, if Ruiz can put a string together, and let's say Wilder stayed unbeaten, he gets by Fury the second time. Um, you're staring at a, 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 a big, big, big unification fight in the United States. Um, if Fury wins out, he could fight. He could fight Ruiz. Um, if Joshua wins, Joshua and Fury is like the biggest UK heavyweight fight ever. I mean, there's a, there's there's some big possibilities out there. But again, it's it's a it's not it's a top heavy division right now. Yeah, I mean, I and I really wish that you know. I mean, I, I've heard that. Uh, I mean, and I don't know if this is true. And I, I asked Tim Smith about it, and he wasn't sure either. But um, I've heard that it's basically a fait accompli that it's going to be two fights between Wilder and Fury next year, um, which I really hope that's not the case. Because if Ruiz beat Joshua, um, I would really like to see the heavyweight belts unified. <laughs> you know, it would be, you know. Uh, you know, a Wilder Ruiz fight um, would be tremendous, and, and and to have one champion would be great. And that's kind of like how it should work. But but obviously, between those four guys, if Ruiz even just you know if he loses but shows well against Joshua in the rematch, I mean, you know, it's it's you know you got four guys who who should be fighting each other quite a bit. You know, over the next couple of years, it, it you know. So. Well, and you got some in, and you got and some other guys, guys on like, the way up. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you got guys coming up. You got some other guys who can get back in the mix. I mean, Joseph Parker didn't look great against Anthony Joshua, um, but sometime late in the Dillian White fight, he, he remembered how to throw punches again um, and to be more active. He's looked better since then. He's the only guy who's beaten Ruiz. So, I mean, there there are options out there to make some interesting fights, um, and and I think they will. Even if it's a fait accompli that they fight twice next year, it doesn't mean that there can't be another fight between that. Um, there's no there's no law that says you can only fight twice a year. <laughs> Oh, I wish it were so with the heavyweights. It'd be great if they got real active again at, at the top level. So, but uh, but hey, man. But me... really, but really, I mean, they've never been. I mean, look, the heavyweight champions outside of, let's say, Joe Lewis, who you know once defended the title seven times in one year. Heavyweight's always been a little different, like that too. When people talk about how active the sport used to be, Ali was real active in the seventies when he came back. But I mean, Joe Frazier didn't defend the title. You know, he didn't fight six, seven times a year. Um, George Foreman, when he was champion, didn't fight six or seven times a year. Evander Holyfield was really a two times a year kind of guy once he got to the title level. At heavyweight, when it's hot, the money's so good, you don't have to go get beat up four times a year. Right, right. That's and true. Mike, and, and Tyson was real active. Right. But when your fights are all over in three rounds, you know, or <laughs> six rounds, and, and, and you're just wailing on people, you can do that. And even his activity kind of slowed down once he hit his mid 20s. And, and then, you know, then right. he, he went away for a few years. So. Right, but but there's a drawback. I mean, I think you and I talked about it with Anthony Joshua. We were hoping that he would stay active, you know, and, and fight, you know, at least three times a year. And, and once he didn't do that, um, 
you know, he lost his title. I think, it's, I think, <laughs> I, I, and I think with Joshua, that that could end up being part of the story down the road. I mean, I think in Ruiz, and even if you look back at the Klitschko fight, I mean, you know, hindsight being twenty twenty, you can start to wonder if, if part of Joshua's problem is that he just doesn't recover well when he's hurt. Mm. Some guys get hurt and bounce back, I and mean, we've seen. Wilder has good recuperative skills. Fury has good recuperative skills. Joshua seems to stay hurt when he's hurt. Right. Um, but he also, you know, I mean, let's, I mean, he, he was progressing. He was developing at a rapid rate. And then he went to two times a year. And you have to wonder if he stagnated a little bit. And, and we'll start to get some of those answers in December. Might also be that Ruiz has the perfect style for him. Um, and, you know, we'll see how careers play out. Strange things happen in boxing. I mean, you know, Lennox Lewis was written off more than once and ended up being one of the 10 greatest heavyweights of all time. Evander Holyfield was written off after the first bow fight. He was written off after the Moore fight. And then Evander Holyfield, you know, had, he, he, had a, he had a third and fourth act. I mean, we just don't know. Um, that's part of the fun. We don't, we don't know. We'll, Absolutely. We'll find out. Absolutely. Yeah, and they're all great fights to look forward to. So let me give you one more here, Mr. Rold. Uh, just wanted to get your thoughts on uh, on DAZN and uh, Matchroom doing the the, the KSI uh, Logan Paul uh, rematch fight uh, as a main event with two world title fights on there last night. Uh, I guess I ask you know first of all, did you even uh, stick around for the main event last night? Not really. I mean, I had it on in the background for a little bit, um, but uh, but I was more pa- I was paying attention to the Jamel Herring fight. I mean, it wasn't my thing. I don't have anything against it. Good for them. I don't know who those kids are. <laughs> I mean, yeah. That's uh, that's for that's for a, a younger demographic than me. Um, but I mean, and they're not boxers. But I got nothing against celebrity boxing. I watched Danny Bonaduce fight. You know, whoever the hell he fought on some. Uh, I think he fought one of the Brady's on a uh, celebrity boxing. I watched Tanya Harding do celebrity boxing once. I mean, to me, yeah, that was I'm my favorite sort of thing. That was my favorite. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed watching her beat the hell out of Paula Jones. And and I gotta say, yeah, I mean, was- that might have been the worst referee job I've ever seen. Paula Jones clearly did not want any more and took like a full minute and a half more of a beating from Tanya Harding. <laughs> Dude, you're you're remembering this a hell of a lot better than I am. I just remember, but I knew who Tanya Harding was, and I knew who Danny Bonarducci was, right? Because I, right. I I watched the Partridge Family when I was a little kid, and you know all that all that stuff. So I mean, if I knew who these guys were, I would have had fun with it. What I noticed um, was that the crowd seemed like they were having a great time. Um, social media seemed to have fun with it. I mean, if you don't take yourself too serious, you can just kind of be in on the joke. And at the end of the day, look. It wasn't my thing, but two guys went out in front of the whole world and uh, and punched each other and took the chance to get knocked silly. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's not a gutless thing to do. So good for them. I hope everyone had a great time. I don't think it's going to have a lasting effect on the sport or make new fans. But, uh, but if they all made some good money and they put on a show that the people that were there enjoyed, then God bless them. That's, that's all that really matters. Right, right, right. I mean, you know, people, you know, when, when, when these type of events happen, they're always like, oh, is it good for the sport? Is it bad for the sport? I mean, to me, it's going to make a small ripple, you know, and people are going to, like, not talk about it, you know, in maybe another week. Well, and it's funny, right? Because there was, like, this counter narrative that there were all these purists who were, you know, dumping on it and hated it and going bananas. I didn't see a lot of that. Maybe maybe it's who I, I follow on my Twitter timeline, but. I mean, I saw a lot of apathy. Like, people didn't care one way or the other. Um, I'd probably fall in that category. I didn't care one way or the other. Um, but, I mean, I didn't see it being something that people really hated. I, it, it felt like one of those occasions where there was an attempt to create a narrative, right? Like, oh, you know, this is there's, there's people who hate this. And, 
you know, that that's smart, right? Like, go ahead. That that can help promote and make money, and God bless them. But I just, you know, I it, it happened, and it's over. I mean, it's sort of like the Mayweather-McGregor thing. People went nuts about that. Right. Um, people actually did get upset about that sometimes. I didn't care. I mean, two guys figured out how to split almost half a billion dollars. Right. I mean, good for them. <laughs> I mean, they still got in and fought. I right, mean, it, right. you know, Conor McGregor still had to get punched in the face. I mean, you know, I mean, it, it, it good for them. I mean, they, they put on a show that the people who were there enjoyed, um, and there was no harm, no foul. I mean, what has there been some lasting detriment to boxing because of it? No. You right. know, I mean, it, you know, I mean, if you knew if you knew what to expect going in, there was no way Floyd Mayweather was going to lose to a non-boxer, but it didn't hurt. Muhammad Ali sparring with Lyle Alzado didn't hurt. Muhammad Ali getting kicked in the leg outside of almost losing a leg. Um, didn't hurt him to go and, and do his thing with Antonio Inoki. It's just, yeah, it's a stunt. Good for them. Right. And, and this one was, was different than all of those in that, you know, I mean, I guess people were more upset because, you know, the, the Nevada State Athletic Commission actually sanctioned uh, Mayweather versus a guy who'd never had a professional fight. I mean, these were two two celebrities who'd never had a professional fight and who'd had like an amateur exhibition against each other. You know, I mean, it was, there was no, it was not a mismatch. It was, it wasn't pretending to be anything what it, the, other than what it was. And, uh, no, yeah. I mean, again, brother, look, if the people who paid to see that last night enjoyed what they got right. and they had a good time, then God bless them. I mean, I, I've spent money on way sillier stuff than that. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I once tracked down a, a DVD of the David Hasselhoff Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. movie he did at Nick Fury just so I could complete a collection. I mean, who am I to scoff at anybody else's silliness, right? Ooh, like that's, I, that's I, hardcore, I, I man. I paid above retail for a David Hasselhoff movie. Come on. <laughs> all right. All right, man. Well, on that note, on the David Hasselhoff note, uh, really appreciate it. <laughs> uh, I uh, really appreciate you taking the time on a Sunday, Cliff, and uh, and uh, appreciate your wisdom uh, and all that. And, uh, you know, hope you enjoy the rest of your Sunday. You too, buddy. And uh, thank you for having me again. I appreciate you asking. All right, my man. Take care. All right, Kurt. Have a good Sunday. Okay, you too. Bye. And that will do it for another edition of the Boxing Esquire podcast presented by The Ring and ringtv.com and distributed by the Leave It In The Ring Network. I'd like to thank Cliff for taking the time out to speak to me on a Sunday. And if you like the podcast, please leave a comment or a rating on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Audioboom, SoundCloud, or wherever you access the Boxing Esquire podcast. I really appreciate it as it helps new listeners find the podcast. And also, do not forget to check out my companion piece to this podcast on ringtv.com that features quotes and background on my interview with Cliff. And until next time, so long, everybody. Looking for?